Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Glinder. We have another great show this week, and Adam sits down for an interview with Mark Bluestein. Mark, more often known as Blue, is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Aquarius Sports and Entertainment, an award-winning sponsorship consulting, activation, and experiential marketing agency based in the Washington, D.C. market. Blue has over 20 years developing and negotiating integrated sponsorships spanning the Super Bowl, Olympics, the Final Four, PGA Tour, NASCAR, and multiple NFL, MLB, NHL, and NBA local franchises, their venues, and major events. Before launching Aquarius in 2007, Blue served as the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Sportsworks, where he oversaw corporate marketing and sales for Major League Baseball's Washington Nationals, the Nationals Radio Network, and the NHL's Washington Capitals. He previously served as a Senior Director of Sponsorship Sales for Comcast Sportsnet Mid-Atlantic, the regional sports network serving the Washington area. Prior to that, Blue managed integrated sponsorship sales for the nation's recognized leader in sports journalism, Sports Illustrated. Blue began his career in sports marketing by handling sports media planning and buying for prominent agency MediaVest Worldwide, where he negotiated sports marketing sponsorships for top consumer brands including Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, and Philips & Relco, among others. It's a fascinating career that touches so many parts of the sports industry. We very much appreciate Blue's time and hope that everyone enjoys Adam's conversation with Mark Bluestein. Western Masters of Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. Today's guest is Mark Blue Bluestein. We were talking about this earlier, but I don't think I've ever called you Mark before, so (laughs) nice to get your formal name. But Blue, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you, and and thanks for joining today. Uh, Good morning, Adam. Um, Yeah, again, I think I told you only my grandmother's called me Mark, so uh, Blue it is, and you know, happy to be doing this. Love having this opportunity to talk to uh, the future leaders of the sports marketing industry. Yeah, and on that note, you know, obviously you yourself are a leader in the sports marketing, sponsorship, hospitality, experiential parts of the sports industry. Can you give a little bit of more background for our students so they can get to know you and get to know how you've achieved your success so as you've achieved it so far in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. I was lucky enough at a college to start working at a traditional advertising agency back in the mid-90s as a media planner and media buyer. And sports at that time was becoming a bit of a this this new I, I discipline, right? This new piece of the media plans, sports sponsorship, sports media. And I had a boss who called me in his office one day and he said, you know, of all the people in the media department, you're the biggest sports fan I know. So I'm going to make you the sports marketing manager of the media department. And I was 23 years old at the time. And I said, that sounds really exciting. You know, what does that particularly mean? And he said, I don't really know. You need to go figure that out. And so, you know, it was really a great opportunity at a young age to immerse myself in this new you know, component of the communications platform of sports marketing and sponsorship and media and spent really a couple of years at a regional agency in Baltimore, Maryland, you know, honing my craft and really understanding that and always uh, had dreamed of living and working in New York City. 
and had the opportunity a couple years later, 97, 98, to go work at a big agency, one of the really big agencies in New York and what they were in the media department. But at the time, what they were referring to as the sports properties group. So I got to work on some really amazing pieces of business, such as Coca-Cola. And at the time, their National Football League partnership, and they were a major league baseball partner. So really, uh, and at the time too, we, we do a lot in NASCAR now, but they had launched something that still exists today called the Coca-Cola Racing Family in NASCAR. And I wrote the first media plan to market the new Coca-Cola Racing Family and just some really neat opportunities in the sports space. My time there, I had the opportunity to work on Philips Norelco, which was the electric shavers and the beer and mustache trimmers. And we did some really neat things uh, in sports media, some experiential marketing uh, with, at the time, the Gravity Games, which was NBC's answer to ESPN's The X Games. We did things with Major League Baseball. We did uh, things with Jim Rome and Mike and Mike at the time on ESPN had launched with having them take live and on air every day the Norelco 21-day challenge, which was going from a straight razor to an electric shaver. So just some really neat opportunities for the combination of sports sponsorship, sports media, experiential, had an opportunity to work on some Procter & Gamble business. So when you look at, you know, working on big brands such as P&G, Coca-Cola, and learning how major marketers really develop their objectives, their strategies, the implementation of the packaged goods, consumer services, and consumer product industry, some really unbelievable experience the, the first part of my career. And then uh, from there, Adam, I transitioned into the sports media world. I spent time, we were talking earlier before we started the podcast at Sports Illustrated for a number of years, uh, but not you know, in their selling ad pages, but launching, helping develop their sponsorship group, which was taking things uh, that were iconic uh, franchises within the magazine's brand. Think swimsuit issue every year, think sportsman of the year issue. And instead of it having be a one time a year issue in February uh, and in December, respectively, for a swimsuit and for a sportsman, we made those fully integrated sponsorship platforms where, yes, we had the advertising in the magazine during those issues, but we licensed the intellectual property to brands for sponsorship or on pack rights in store. Uh, we created television programming and specials around that. We created um, expanded opportunities on uh, digital and web platforms beyond the magazine. Really an incredible opportunity with a brand as iconic as, as Sports Illustrated. And then I spent, after that, some time overseeing sales at a regional sports network in Washington, D.C., where you and I grew up watching uh, the teams that we loved and uh, sold for the Washington Nationals when they relocated from uh, Montreal to D.C. for the first couple of seasons. And uh, then in 2007, uh, had the entrepreneurial itch that I decided to scratch and was when I launched Aquarius Sports and Entertainment really uh, to serve as a full service sports marketing 
agency, you know, consultancy, you know, where we handle strategy, negotiation, and activation for our clients. You know, I ultimately went back to my roots, right? I started as an agency guy. Um, I grew up in the industry as an agency guy. And out of what I had done in between my start of my career and before I launched Aquarius, it was just the agency world kept calling me back. And so now we've we're year 13 into Aquarius and um, feel really fortunate and really blessed, you know, to be sort of completing year 25 of the industry for me. And I, I want to get into Aquarius a little bit later on in the, in the podcast, because I think what you guys are doing are really interesting and creative, but to start out with, you know, one of the things you just mentioned is the entrepreneurial bug. And while you started Aquarius, it seems like entrepreneurship, whether it's particularly within organizations, was something you were always interested in and excited about. So can you talk a little bit more about kind of how entrepreneurship, whether particularly within organizations and whether it's launching new brands, launching new verticals, taking the opportunity to work in sports media, can you talk about how that's impacted your career? Yeah, it really starts from my youth, to be honest. Um, my, my grandfather on my mom's side was very entrepreneurial. He, you know, was, uh, he grew up and made his life in, in Philadelphia and always was in entrepreneurial ventures and running businesses. And, you know, I learned a lot from him on, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you know, the roles and responsibilities you have, whether they be, you know, personal, professional, financial, um, all the hats you have to wear, right? When you're an entrepreneur, uh, you're not only the chief executive officer, but you're the chief client officer, you're the chief financial officer, you're the chief communications officer. You know, there are a whole lot of chiefs that, um, that you have to wear, and especially in the early years, not a lot of Indians, right? So how do you build that business? How do you, um, one of the things I learned from him, uh, it's not what you know, but it's more importantly, it's knowing, uh, I know what I know, but more importantly, I know what I don't know, right? So it's when you know what you don't know, how do you surround yourself with the right men, women, people in, that can help guide you, can help balance you and help bring you to a direction um, that makes you successful. The other piece of that is, you know, mentor-mentee relationships, right? Um, to this day, I have people that are ages 70, 80 plus that have been longtime mentors to me and they still are. And I have people that I are mentees to me. And sort of I look at this range of experience of I'm having a call or having a lunch or a coffee with a 25 year old person that I'm um, mentoring. And then, then, you know, a week later, I'm having that same lunch or coffee with a 75 or 80 year old person that's mentoring me still. Right. Um, and, you know, I think it was Jim Valvano might have said um, during his famous ESPN speech, you know, every day make sure you, I think it was live, laugh, and learn or, or something along those lines, right? So trying to ensure as an entrepreneur that you're living in the moment, right? Um, you're, you're enjoying yourself and really you are laughing because I think part of entrepreneurship is your passion, right? I tell people all the time, I'm fortunate my personal passion, which is sports, became my profession. So I don't ever feel like it's work for me. Uh, and and so I, I have a smile on my face. You know, we're enjoying every day. You know, I tell our staff that 
if you have the privilege to be working in this industry and you don't have a smile on your face, it's probably not the right industry. Um, but learn and make sure every day you know you learn something new. And I can tell you, I sort of feel like every day in some form or fashion, um, I'm learning something new. Uh, and I think that's really been the key to you know some of the foundations that I've had you know throughout my entrepreneurial experience over these last 13 years or so. And I want to hit on that point that you just brought out about developing um, mentorship opportunities, cultivating relationships with people. Can you talk more about how you've done that? I mean, I know from my own experience, you know, talking with you, the relationships that you've had, the relationships you've built, how have you gone about doing that? And how have you been able to prioritize and really understand how to build those relationships and build your network? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that I always like to point to. First and foremost is, you know, I, I think it's the identification of people that are like-minded, uh, similar to how you're like-minded. And it's not even so much the industry you're in, right? Like, you know, I have a, a mentor who was a, a client of mine. Uh, I started working with him at the regional sports network I mentioned. And he was the president of a, a residential home building company. And they were a client and an advertiser and a sponsor, but he became a friend and understood how he led, right? And you know, the residential home building industry and the sport, regional sports network media, you know, industry couldn't have been two differentiators, right? On one opposite end of the spectrum. But, you know, his path to leadership, uh, how he handles internally different departments, right? What, who he learns from, who he draws from. So I think it's finding people like that, that yes, they need to be like-minded, but what is the diversification of the industries that they're in and how can you apply some of the principles that they are sharing with you that maybe have an application you know to your industry um you know another mentor of mine longtime mentor cfo of publicly traded companies right um you know what are the roles and responsibilities he has as he retired now but as a cfo and what, and what were you know the the growth opportunities what were the challenges what for the pitfalls you know, it's really interesting you know in in learning from him um on developing a strategic growth plan you know for our agency on how we want to look to scale so you know, it's really finding the right people. And again, the, the wealth and knowledge they have uh, that I think can help you achieve um, what you're looking for is for as learning. Like I say, it comes back to learning. I think the other thing that's really critical is the relationship-based piece of this. And I think it's understanding how to follow up what's the appropriate way to follow up and more importantly what's the appropriate timing right because you can meet somebody feel like they could be opportunistic you know in our case in looking in my case in this situation looking for a mentor or someone potentially wants to look at me as a mentor to them you know how do you approach it you know I mentioned my grandfather earlier you know one of the things he always taught me was the art of the handwritten note Right. And today, the art of the handwritten note is um, almost might be something you see in a Smithsonian, right? As <laughs> something that you used to do with like phones that had, you know, cords attached to them. And I, I will tell you, 
it is very rare I receive a handwritten note anymore from people that I talk to, but my reaction to receiving that, where somebody actually took the time to sit down and put pen to paper and put it in the envelope and put a stamp on it and mail it versus hopping on their keyboard five minutes after you met with them with a quick, hey, thanks so much for meeting. Great, hope we can stay in touch. You know, it, there's a sense of authenticity um, to that, that builds a little bit more of a connection, appreciation, and people are more mindful of things like that. I still am a big handwritten note guy to this day. And I can't tell you how many people will say to me, hey, I got your note, you know, it's very nice, you know, thank you. Um, so I think it's, 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 it's that way. It's um, following up and picking up the telephone still. Um, there is something to be said about interpersonal communications and interpersonal connection that is key to building the relationship, right? Uh, and in today's day and age, it's, it's a lot of easier just to sit behind a keyboard or send a text message, right? Um, there's nothing interpersonal about email exchanges or text message exchanges. Um, I think like we're doing now in this video chat, and we've seen this more and more over the last several months, um, you're building human connection, right? And human connection is part of the interpersonal communication standpoint. So for me to this day, you know, it's still driving in the car and making three or four calls to people that either I talk to all the time or I haven't talked to in several months and just checking in, having a, a real conversation, not an electronic conversation, that I think is part of that. And that really becomes the foundation and the establishment of the relationship building process that then, you know, if done right and there's an appetite on both ends to develop a mentee-mentor relationship uh, that I think kind of gets to the end goal of finding that match. And, well, only thing I'll say on the handwritten note is I have terrible handwriting, so that's probably probably better <laughs> for me when you get it from a, a type note than a handwritten note, but the point is well taken about authentic communication. And engagement. Well, another thing my grandfather used to tell me, penmanship. Yeah. Penmanship, son. They got to have good penmanship. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. My wife tells me the same But it's, it's generational, though, to your yeah. point, Adam. You know what's interesting? And I find this fascinating. My 10th grade year of high school, I took a typing class. And I remember my buddies giving me a hard time saying, like, oh, guy taping typing. And I said, you know, I really took it because there were a lot of girls in the class and maybe I get a date. But I look back now and go, just learning the basics of a keyboard and how to type. And my kids or my wife will watch how quick I type. And it's all for one year of typing class in the 10th grade. Yeah. And now everything is done on computers and digital. And, you know, I watch, I have 14 teenagers, they've never taken a typing class in their life, which makes zero sense to me, right? But you look at sort of the foundation of, you know, handwriting and penmanship or typing and things that were foundations of our education growing up that now would seem more than ever to be part of like curriculum uh, in the elementary level, even the middle, uh, middle school level. And it, it just doesn't even exist anymore. My kids, nobody even gets taught how to write cursive anymore. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think it builds on to the next question that I wanted to ask, um, which is, you know, you've, you've mentioned before, whether it's through penmanship, typing, develop, you know, the commercial or residential real estate business, you've obviously taken a lot and learned a lot from 
outside of the sports industry and apply in your career? You were talking about the marketing plans that you were, particularly with Coca-Cola, Philips and Rocco. Can you just talk a little bit more about that, how you've taken things from outside the sports industry, taken ideas, concepts, learnings from outside the sports industry and have applied them in your career today? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, I I think every day there's something a little bit new and, and you know, I look at our client roster and, our clients and the programs that we're doing really cross lots of different um, genres, right? We've got deals with the NHL and the NBA and Major League Baseball and um, the NFL and then NASCAR and PGA and golf. And, you know, while there are some disciplines that are um, similar, they're all their own different business, right? So it's how do you apply a marketing strategy and application that the NASCAR fan may consume, right? Drinking Coca-Cola versus the NFL fan might consume. So one of the things that I I thought was very, very smart in how, uh, you know, working on the Coca-Cola business, right? Um, Now at the time, and I don't know if they still use these terms, which is my disclaimer on this, but Every Coca-Cola marketing or media plan had three variations. We had the GM plan, which stood for general marketing, general market. We had the um, AAMP, which was the African-American marketing plan. And we had the, uh, let me think of the acronym, the HAMP, Hispanic American marketing plan. Right. And the way, the reason Coke did that is because the way different uh, ethnic groups consumed their advertising at the time was very, very different. Right. On how uh, also the thematic creative, they were very, very smart. Right. If they were targeting at the time, you know, they were an MBA partner and they, they found, and I know we'll get into this because you're analytics, research and data at the time told them that more people in the African-American community drank Sprite. Okay. It didn't mean people in the non-African-American community didn't drink Sprite. Okay. But the high it indexed and the propensity was higher that that community consumed more Sprite than the general market community. So we'd have a general market media plan, right? Where we would be running commercials and advertising in this general market and the creative would be developed and themed that way. But you'd have other um, creative and media that you'd run, you know, Black entertainment television at the time, you know, was really popular, right? So we'd run a Sprite MBA ad, right, with thematic creative that talked to that audience, right? You didn't put, you know, an all, um, you know, white family sitting around the dinner table to run a piece of creative on black entertainment television. You use, you know, actors or athletes that really spoke to that community, right? So, and, and P&G was no different, right? It was really understanding who their audience was, what the data within the research was telling them, and really how to structure, like, the message to who they were targeting and who they were speaking to. So if I apply that today and some of the things that I learned in the foundation, you know, if we are writing, you know, an activation plan that is against an NHL audience for a client versus an activation plan that might be against an NBA audience or against a NASCAR audience, 
if you look at the makeup and you look at the data, right, you know, uh, demographic data, psychographic data, right? Those, those audience and those fan bases are three very different fan bases, right? So what is the messaging? What is the thematic creative that's being developed against those different audiences? You know, what is the activation or media selection criteria that we are developing on behalf of those clients, you know, to speak to those audiences that may have a bit of a higher index than general market? While, don't get me wrong, the mass plan that's focused on the general market is still giving you the best air coverage on hitting the masses at once, but how are you really speaking to those subset groups and feeling like an individual one-on-one -on -one engagement or one-on-one -on -one connection? And that can be done right through traditional advertising. That can be done through, you know, in, you know before the pandemic we're in right now, but live, one-on-one -on -one engagement and an activation or now through like an online experiential or digital experience it, you, you talked about um aquarius and activation plans and i, I want to get back to that specifically one in terms of what aquarius is in detail and then if you can define like what you mean by activation plan for our sure. audience because they might not be familiar with it yeah so you know overall you know our core business is to work with corporations and specifically brands on developing uh sports marketing programs that are part of their overall marketing communications mix, right? So typically a company will have an advertising plan, right? And their advertising plan may include, you know, television advertising, radio advertising, outdoor, social, digital, web, sports marketing, um, shouldn't be, or sponsorship shouldn't necessarily be looked at as independent of that. And honestly, it used to be and held to a very, very different standard, but now it just becomes really a communications tool in the holistic plan. So what we're typically doing is working with our clients and or their traditional advertising agencies to develop sports marketing programs and sponsorships that are complementary to achieving their overall brand communications platform. So our role and responsibility is runs the gamut from uh, what we call identification negotiation, um, evaluation, negotiation, activation, and then measurement are kind of the five tent poles, right? So identification is really, again, what thinking about the brand, what their business goals and objectives are, what makes sense for them. Should they be, you know, an NFL sponsor or with teams in the NFL or the other stick and ball sports, golf, tennis, NASCAR, NCAA, right? So we, that's the identification piece, right? Then we then, if once we've identified what they do and uh, what, excuse me, what property they might end or properties they might align with, right? We then go into the negotiation process. Right? We, you know, ask for proposals, we evaluate them, we run um, valuation methodology on inventory and asset to cost analysis and ultimately um, determine the right value, make those suggestions to our clients, work within the budgetary parameters and go back and negotiate those sponsorship deals on that client's behalf. So we negotiate them, we place them, and then we become responsible for managing them and ensuring all of the marketing inventory is, excuse me, executed and fulfilled against. 
then we start to go into, um, so now we've done, like I mentioned, we've done the um, evaluation, the valuation, the negotiation. Now we get into the activation. And you had asked, you know, to explain that an activation is just a really fancy word we use in this industry that really is developing the promotional marketing plans that support the sponsorship is really what activation means. And activation can take on many forms or fashions. It could be media support around the programming. Um, it could be, you know, live on-site experiential programming. It could be hospitality. It could be sweepstakes and promotions. It could be um, in-store point-of-sale collateral, right? There's, there's many activations or promotional marketing programs that can be developed to support a sponsorship. And then finally, that last piece is measurement, right? Uh, at the start of any campaign, at the start of any strategic planning session, you know, we identify the, the key performance indicators or the metrics that are going to determine the success uh, of the campaign. And they may be traditional brand health metrics, right? Such as awareness, consideration, intent. Uh, they may be things such as, you know, you very well know and what you're doing at Block 6 is helping us with a couple of clients on just the overall impressions that the sponsorship portfolio is delivering to the, the, the target audience. Uh, any of those, but that really becomes the measurement piece we are big believers in measurement uh, because at the end of the day, I want a client, I need to find out at the end of this campaign, you know, what What do you, if I say, um, did it work or didn't work, what are you going to base that on? And any partner property that we negotiate with should do the same thing. So when it comes to renewal, they want to know that they succeed or not succeed and what are we going to be judged on? And, and I will tell you, um, that's gotten a little bit more sophisticated over the years, but I'll never forget, you know, there are many companies that spend a large amount of dollars in the sponsorship space that didn't necessarily have the right answers to those questions. I, you know, tell a story and I won't name the, the client, but it was a $60 billion corporation that we did some work for and we were hired to handle all their NASCAR activation. And I, in one of the first meetings, I asked the, the brand stakeholders, you know, currently, how do you measure the success of the program? And they paused and somewhat, you know, reluctantly said, like, mm, anecdotal feedback and sometimes impressions, right? And part of our plan and our program was ensuring we had specific measurement and data points uh, and key for key performance indicators defined, so they didn't have to kind of shrug their shoulders and use like anecdotal feedback or something like that, and became very very successful. So again, that being the fifth area of our core business um, is a big part of of what we do and why partners, honestly, like a block six, have been really helpful to us and our clients over the years. Yeah, and one of the questions we wanted to talk about is the impact of quantitative analysis and data on what you guys are doing. Um, a follow-up question to that is, you know, you mentioned this example of this company that was looking at, you know, it didn't have a, a 
a clear way of defining success. How have you seen the evolution of using data, using quantifiable metrics, not just for yourself, but within the industries, particularly with your corporate clients? Are they looking for or asking for more data? And are they, are they seeing more of the value of data and quantitative analysis? You know, I, I think the short and direct answer to that is yes. I can tell you I'm of the opinion, whether it's our clients or talking to other, you know, agency executives that are friends, I don't, I think there is so much data out there and available. I'm not so sure at times that people are even sophisticated enough to really understand how to use the data that's available to them. And, I, and that's not a knock on anybody's intelligence, right? That is just now we are in this data-driven society, as you well know. And listen, what's the old adage, right? The data can tell any story you want, right? It's a matter of how you craft it. And, you know, what is the story you want to tell and what's the spin you want to put on it? But for us, I can tell you, we, we are using the data a little bit more. You know, we, we, we're, we were very big. Um, over the years in syndicated research, right? And having people do deep dives into markets. And again, we talked earlier about demographic, psychographic, and building target audience and profiles for our clients on what, what are the passion points uh, and how should we deploy sponsorship dollars? I, I love this one particular example. Um, one of our clients who's in the financial services industry has a wealth management um, division. And we had, we're asked to develop a sponsorship strategy for the wealth management division. And we identified sort of three areas of sponsorship as part of the strategy. And one was, you know, large scale sports, right? And college sports, for instance, pop to the top and um, like IndyCar and, and you know, uh, tennis, like high had a high affluency in sports like that, college especially because of the alumni factor and fandom that goes back to your, your college institution. The second area was something we kind of called lifestyle events, which was sort of bike cycling and, and marathons and things like that. And the third was what we called grassroots passion. And I'll never forget, one of the biggest things was antiquing. Like this group was into antiquing. And we, we understood that and found that through like the data, through syndicated research against this particular audience. And we had a whole strategy on taking large scale sponsorships and some of the largest antique shows around the country. You know, if you would have told me 20 years ago, we'd be developing a sponsorship around antiquing, you know, I never would have guessed it, but it goes back to the question about how are we using data, right? Um, so I, I think now, Again, I think we've seen this um, this growth in data that's available. I think we continue to use it um, in ways that help make us at least smarter in what we're presenting and sharing with our clients. Um, I, I, I can tell you, at least from my own personal experience, I still think though, a lot of the data that's being consumed by the brand is still very much going back to a lot of that traditional 
brand health metrics and what's getting them into the sales funnel, right? At the end of the day, people want to know from a sponsorship, what kind of awareness am I getting? You know, is it growing my purchase, you know, consideration? Is it growing intent? Uh, all those, you know, likely to recommend, you know, all those personal health metrics, brand health metrics, <laughs> excuse me, um, seem to still be, that was the questions they were asking 20 years ago. That was the questions they're asking now. The difference is it's more available in real time, right? That's where I think the biggest swing has been. You know, a lot of the data used to be captured from surveys that would take a long time, intercept studies, right? Things like that. The real time availability of the data now, you know, with companies like yours and, and other companies that are providing that, is valuable because it allows us as marketers to perhaps make tweaks to campaigns in the moment that maybe we would have had to wait till the campaign was complete and weeks later the data came in and go ah we, we for the future campaign we can maybe pivot and go here or we can make an adjustment there now if one element is performing better than another we can decide to shift dollars into the one that's performing better or put more money into another one or maybe change the strategy a little bit. And that's where the real-time data becomes super valuable, you know, I think especially to agency marketers. Yeah, and as we get towards the end of the podcast, we want to finish with two uh, questions. The first being, you know, obviously we're in the midst of the coronavirus. Um, what have you seen as the impact of the coronavirus and COVID-19 uh, on, on your business? And what are potentially some trends you're seeing that maybe started or if been accelerated by the coronavirus that you think will have an impact on the industry? Yeah, so I think, um, I think, in my opinion, right, there's still a lot of unknown. You know, I've been, a lot of people talk about these last three months being the new normal. I've been using a term called the now normal. Like, this is our now, right? I don't think yet we know what is the new normal going to look like, right? So, uh, for us, you know, as far as our business goes, you know, particularly, it's been really interesting because, you know, I look at our client roster and, you know, our clients have been good. They, they've really helped serve in the sponsorships in their portfolio. It's been a lot of... Uh, tracking of inventory that has not been delivered because of either leagues that have been put on pause, uh, single event sponsorships like a tennis tournament sponsorship, um, a PGA tournament sponsorship, a NASCAR race that are one time a year type of events that were canceled and don't have a chance of restarting this year. So we're tracking a lot of in lost inventory and determining, you know, how to, you know, either make that good or what are some of the things that we're calling made opportunities, right? Because to the team and the leagues and the properties credit, they're trying now more than ever to determine yeah, they got a lot of things to make up and there's only so much inventory in their toolbox. So what are some of the new areas of opportunity for sponsors and marketers to take advantage of? So I think that's been really interesting during this time to talk to team executives, league executives, other agency executive leaders, what are we all hearing? Trading stories, right? Um, is there going to be a bit of a best practice uh, or alignment in how you make good on, you know, teams or leagues or single event sponsorships? 
I think I could tell you pretty honestly, I don't think there's going to be a best practice or a single alignment. Even, you know, every one of these are so different because it depends on level of sponsor, total dollar investment, uh, what where you are in the term of your agreement. Every one of these is a bit of a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so, you know, I, I think... I think right now we're all still figuring it out because other than NASCAR, nobody's come back, right? You know, NASCAR has done a really nice job. I'll just give you a, a quick for instance. And, you know, you know this client, you work with us, but our Baptist Health client, uh, we had a big partnership with the Homestead Miami Speedway. Uh, there was significant amount of uh, hospitality assets, on-site engagement activation assets that couldn't be delivered. Um, and what they offered up was the ability to uh, take those and take that those dollars and put it against an entitlement for excuse me the truck race so now we have the Baptist Health 200 which we didn't have an entitlement as part of our original deal so for Baptist because you know part of that their goal is impressions and total impressions delivered to be able to pivot to an entitlement of a NASCAR race no matter it was the truck series the Xfinity series or the cup series was super valuable right and we got a lot of feedback so we're doing some new things and doing some things for brands that perhaps they wouldn't either have normally done nor had the dollars available to invest in a level that way. So, but I think we're all still unpacking what the future looks like. You know, as far as our business goes, you know, I feel fortunate, you know, that we've had, you know, good level of stability with our clients and their businesses have been stable. Uh, and, you know, with, challenge that creates opportunity as we were talking before we came on the air you know we have we're not ready we can't publicly announce this yet but throughout the last three months we onboarded two brand new clients that we're doing work for now and we'll be able to talk about once the i's are dotted and t's are crossed on on you know some of the contractual pieces but though those opportunities found themselves to us based on what we started in our early conversation based on relationships that had previously been established and a larger need for outsourced expertise and support because their internal resources unfortunately were either job eliminated or furloughed so for us there have been some areas of opportunity that presented itself uh, for for some new clients throughout this process as well and our last question is a question we ask all of our guests. Um, you know, uh, we're obviously a, a podcast geared towards students and people who are looking to enter or progress in their career in the sports industry. What advice would you give to those students? In particular, you know, you obviously hire people for your agency. What are you looking for when you're looking to hire people? Yeah, so there are three or four things. I get asked this question a lot, as I'm sure a lot of your guests do. Uh, first and foremost, I always like to say, read the trades, right? Make sure uh, you're reading either the hard copy of the Sports Business Journal, the digital version, and not just the sports trades, right? And there's plenty of them out there, whether it's the front office sports of the world, right? Um, uh, synopsis sports, there, there are some really good aggregators of content and original content providers, but we're still marketers, right? So you should be reading the ad ages of the world, right? And different public and brand weeks and different publications like that. 
uh, Event Marketer Magazine does a really nice job. Consume as much of the trades and, and create your knowledge of the industry because when you sit in front of an executive that's looking to hire you, right, it's not about, well, I love sports, I played sports, I'd be a really good sports marketer. It's about, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in being a part of a program similar to what McDonald's did with the Olympics, right? Where you point to something that is show that you've immersed yourself already and prepared yourself for the industry. Uh, that's kind of, you know, one piece of advice I'd like to give. The second piece is, you know, and this isn't um, anything different than what we talked about with mentors, but, you know, how do you network and how do you find your network and build your network? And you know what? Building your network and finding your network isn't, hey, I just met somebody, they gave me their business card, and 30 minutes later, I'm going to send them a LinkedIn request. That drives me crazy because um, I get it, but I don't get it because like a LinkedIn request from Tom Jones, who I might've met somewhere and I have no idea who he is or why he or she may be linking in. Um, probably like you, you, you get these, they show up every day and the people you, you don't have a clue on. And it doesn't necessarily make an impression on somebody. When you network and you meet somebody and you give them a business card, like go back to what you know, we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. Take five or 10 minutes, write them a handwritten note. Tell them you appreciated that meeting with them. And if there's ever an opportunity to talk a little bit further, talk a little bit deeper with them, that's gonna make an impression on me. That's gonna make me remember like the difference between the Adam Grossman who sends me a LinkedIn, you know, five minutes after I met him versus the Adam Grossman who I met who five days or even five weeks later shows up in a handwritten note, right? That's going to make an impression. Um, the third thing I always like to say, and this is now more than ever, like be careful what you're doing on social media. The first people people are doing, first thing people are doing now if they're interested in you, is they're looking up or having their staff look up your social media profile. Um, we're, we're in a dangerous world right now. And what you say, what you do, how you behave um, can impact a lot of things. And for us as an agency, it's not about our brand and the Aquarius brand. It's about the brands that entrust us to work with them and how we become the shepherd for their brand. So we're not representing Aquarius, we're representing AAA, Nickelodeon, you know, M&T Bank, Baptist Health, the list goes on and on, right? Um, so we have to be really careful and really mindful of the people that we're bringing into our organization and how responsible, or maybe at times, unfortunately, irresponsible people may be with their social media. And then the last piece of advice I like to tell people is this is a hard industry to break into, right? While it seems big, it's very small and very narrow. So if you really wanna work in the industry, take any, any job anywhere for any amount of money that people are willing to offer to get in, right? If they want you, if you wanna get in and they want you to go sell tickets at a minor league you know, hockey team in Bismarck, you know, North Dakota, North Dakota, South Dakota, one of, one of the Dakotas, go, right? Do it for a year, do it for a couple years, especially if you're young and you don't have the responsibility of a spouse, a family, um, only to yourself. That 
jump at it because you know those job offers are gonna become few and far between and once once you're in you're in right and you can navigate through and don't worry about the money don't like like if you're gonna really work in sports you're not gonna get paid a lot of money my first job in in sports at that and in, in, in marketing was eighteen thousand dollars a year right and I got a raise to $22,000 a year and I was firmly able to move out of my parents' house and into an apartment with five other guys, but I didn't care, right? It wasn't about the money, it was about the opportunity. So make it about you know the opportunity and don't make it about the geography, don't make it about the money, make it about, you know, if this is your dream and you wanna work in this industry, you know, go seize it and don't overthink it. Well, that's a great place to end it. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. Really appreciate it. Um, glad to hear you're doing well. And you know, thank you for sharing your uh, wisdom with the students. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And uh, happy to do it anytime for you, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Take care.